From Troy Public Radio and Troy University in partnership with the Alabama World Affairs Council, this is Speaking Globally, and I'm Walter Gavan. Welcome back to Speaking Globally, where we look at the history, politics, and culture of different regions and countries around the world and talk with people who can provide context and insight into some of the most important global issues we face. This month marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At the outset, most experts predicted a swift victory for Russia. Yet, here we are, one year later, and Russia has yet to achieve any of its major objectives in the campaign. Ukraine has survived and even mounted a counteroffensive thanks to their own resolve and ingenuity, as well as a steady stream of assistance from Western and NATO allies. But the Voice of America recently asked, how long can that resolve hold in the face of another year of attrition warfare, indiscriminate destruction, and immense suffering? The West is now heavily invested in the Ukraine war. Its flagship battle tanks, crewed by Ukrainians, will soon go head-to-head with Russian armor on the steppes of Europe. This could go on for a very long time. The Russians recognize this, and we, we can tell from Putin's messaging to Russian society, he is preparing the country for a long war. One commentator with an in-depth understanding of the situation is best-selling author and foreign policy analyst Max Boot, with whom I had the pleasure of serving as a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Max has written extensively and incisively about the significance of the war in Ukraine and the role of the U.S. and its allies in that conflict. I spoke with Max recently about the first 12 months of the war and where he expects the conflict to go from here. Max Boot is the Jeannie J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. He has been called one of the world's leading authorities on armed conflict by the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Well, Max, it's a real pleasure to have you here on uh, Speaking Globally to be able to talk about uh, especially the situation in Ukraine, but other factors that are weighing in on the, the world stage today. But I want to start with Ukraine, because lately you have written very forcefully and eloquently about the situation in Ukraine And uh, we're going to dive into details and specifics, but I'd really love to hear a little bit of a global analysis on your part about what what has happened and why. Well, I think what's happening in Ukraine is really a test of the international order. And I think it will really define international order in the 21st century. It will determine whether we have the rule of law or we have the law of the jungle, because in invading Ukraine on February 24th of 2022, you know, Putin is really challenging the basic fundamental underpinning of the post-1945 world order, which is that you cannot change borders by force. You cannot simply annex neighboring countries if you have the military capability to do so. And that's what he's trying to do. 
So I think this is really a battle that goes beyond the future of Ukraine. It's really the future of the world in the 21st century, because if Putin prevails, it will send a signal to China and Iran and other countries that they can transgress with impunity. But if Putin is defeated, I think it will send the, the contrary message of Western unity and willingness to uphold the international order. And I think the, you know, the outcome remains very much in the balance right now. Obviously, Putin's initial foray, his initial gambit to, to try to take all of Ukraine in this lightning offensive failed miserably. And, you know, since the early days of the war, the Russians have made very little progress, whereas the Ukrainians have mounted two successful counteroffensives in the fall around Gerson and Kharkiv. They've taken about 20 percent of the territory that Putin conquered in, in 2022. But now Putin has mounted a major mobilization. Uh, the Ukrainians suggest that the Russians now have as many as 325,000 men in Ukraine, which is a lot more than they started with in, in the early part of 2022. And, and now there's a question of what's going to happen this year. And I think both the Russians and the Ukrainians are eager to go on the offensive once again. And uh, we will see what happens. I think what happens this year will really determine or could determine the outcome of the war because the Ukrainians really need to make some progress in, in winning back lost ground in 2022. Otherwise, I think there's a concern that the greater size of Russia will allow the Russians just to dig in and, and it'll become a frozen conflict. Yeah, I share that concern, Max. Being in the Air Force for 33 years and having studied the Soviets and then the Russians pretty closely, you know, they've always played to that advantage of depth that they have, whether it's time, space, population just a numbers game and a waiting game that they've been willing to play and an ability to absorb tremendous losses and yet persist. What do you think the key is to countering that uh, advantage? And, and you know, frankly, and you, you mentioned, you know, in a, the West, uh, often an impatient West dealing with this kind of situation. I think the key is to provide the Ukrainians the weapons that they're asking for to enable their offensive. Now, belatedly, that is starting to happen with, with at least some of those weapons, notably uh, Western uh, armored vehicles and tanks, which for some reason uh, Europe and the U.S. have been holding off sending, but suddenly the, the logjam broke in January and the U.S. agreed to send some Abrams tanks and the Germans agreed to, to send their leopards and to allow you know other european countries that have leopard tanks to send theirs as well we're sending some bradley so i think all of that is is incredibly important and i hope that it will come in sufficient numbers and, and in sufficient time to enable the ukrainians to train on it and to assimilate it quickly into their military i think they still need some more and i think i'm you know i'm cheered to see that in the latest aid package from from the u.s we are finally offering them some longer range firepower. I think that the key weapon we provided them so far has been the HIMARS rocket artillery, which arrived in the summer of 2022 and instantly was a huge uh, difference maker. That's what really stalled out the Russian offensive and enabled the Ukrainians to go on the attack because with the HIMARS, uh, they were able to target Russian supply lines and Russian headquarters and to really interrupt or at least to disrupt the flow of artillery shells to the front because the Russians had just been raining down artillery 
on the Ukrainians. But the problem with HIMARS is, although it's a very effective system, it only has a range of about 50 miles. And with that 50-mile range, the Ukrainians are too far away to target Russian supply lines in Crimea, which they really need to do. Now, apparently, we're sending, the U.S. is sending some small diameter bombs that have that can be fired out of the same rocket pods and have a range of about 100 miles. What the Ukrainians really want are, are the attackums with, with a range of about 150 miles. And that's something that I think we should be providing to them because if they can disrupt the Russian supply lines, then they will be able to attack the Russians without the, the offensive turning into a bloodbath. I think we also need to be providing them more in terms of air support. And again, we're making some progress there. We're, we're providing them finally and belatedly with some modern Western air defense systems like the, like the NASIMS and the, and the Patriot system, which we had not provided before. And that's absolutely essential because the Ukrainians have been relying largely on Soviet-era systems, but their ammunition stockpiles are running low. So we need to provide them with with systems where there is a, an ample supply of Western ammunition, the, the final piece of the puzzle, I think, is we need to be providing them with aircraft, which we have not done. I frankly don't understand why we didn't send them F-16s a year ago, because by now they would have been trained on them and flying them. Uh, and I think those could be in a, another important component of Ukrainian air defense, as well as Ukrainian offensive operations. But, you know, it's never too late. And I think we need to provide those aircraft. And, of course, obviously, when you provide the aircraft, you also have to provide the spare parts. You have to provide – you have to train mechanics as well as pilots. So there's a lot that, that goes into it, but uh, that should not be an excuse for an action. It should be an argument for starting as soon as possible. Yeah, I share your frustration, I would have to say. As, a, as an Air Force fighter pilot – you know, I felt like well, right off the bat, we should have been trying to give them, whether it was S-16s or, you know, whether the French were going to give them the Rafale or another system, a good uh, fourth generation uh, fighter capability to go with the MiG-29s that they had. I, I, I didn't understand why we didn't do that. I know we, we worked to get them spare parts to get the MiG-29s and conditions so that they could get more uh, sorties out of them. But knowing that that is uh, because of the training involved in it, that is a long lead sort of thing. I'm very frustrated we didn't start that earlier. But I'm, I'm hopeful that, like you said, it's it's not too late and certainly something that we need to do. Uh, I'd agree with you on the the ATACMs. That could really be a game changer for them. But I was very encouraged to see the announcement on the small diameter bomb It'll give them a lot more range with uh, that they're. I think they're going to need. I mean, I share your frustration, and it's been very hard for me to get a straight answer from folks, at, you know, at the administration and the Pentagon as to why they refuse this on the F-16s. I mean, one of the answers I've gotten back from pretty senior officials is, "Well, we don't want them to go and bomb Moscow, do we? That would start World War III." Well, I mean, they already have MiG-29s. If they wanted to bomb Moscow, they could, but they're not. And, I, you know, the Ukrainians have been, I think, very responsible partners, and they've repeatedly said that they will abide by any restrictions that we put on the weapon systems that we give them. And I think they've done that because they have staged a few attacks on Russian bases in Russia, but they, uh, from what I know, have not used uh, American-provided systems because we've said that we don't want them being used for that purpose. And so I think we can pretty well 
you know, we, we can be pretty confident they're not going to go and try to bomb Moscow if we get those 16s. They're going to go and, and they should be bombing Russian supply lines and in Crimea, and that's that's a legitimate target. You know, it's interesting as we talk about this, about giving people systems, and this was a little bit before my time, but I studied Vietnam and uh, the Vietnam War pretty uh, uh, closely, as you can imagine, uh, during my career. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't seem to have any compunction then, uh, nor did the Soviets, about equipping sides with fighters, air defense systems, tanks. Pretty much uh, everything flowed that that needed to flow, and World War III never uh, happened there. So it's it's been interesting to compare those two experiences and kind of, again, I scratch my head at, at why we're dragging our feet, uh, especially after the Ukrainians showed early on that they were not going to be run over. I mean, frankly, I was on the sidelines cheering, just saying, please, bloody their nose, at least you know, make it hard for them. And then I was so encouraged when, uh, you know, they really acquitted themselves well on the battlefield and were able to to defend Kiev and to uh, then mount a counteroffensive later on. Yeah, no, they've, they've certainly far exceeded expectations. And you're right, there was that hesitancy to provide them much in the way of, of firepower early on because the whites, and this was a major intelligence failure. I mean, it was kind of a there was an intelligence success and an intelligence failure. The intelligence success was, I think, the U.S. intelligence community very accurately predicted that the Russians would, in fact, invade when there was a lot of skepticism, even in Ukraine, that that would happen. But I think the U.S. IC fell down, along with you know, all the other analysts, but I'm from most of the other analysts anyway, I'm familiar with, in expecting that the Russians would actually succeed with their invasion. And once it became clear that they were not succeeding, I think that's encouraged us to gradually ramp up the weaponry, but the ramp up is just happening, you know, I think too slowly. And I think we need to, you know, pick it up to give the Ukrainians uh, the ability to take the initiative and also to keep in mind that there's also a political timeline because, you know, now, for example, Republicans are in control of the House and, you know, roughly half of Republicans are, are now opposed to military aid to Ukraine. So, you know, that's not an issue for this year because last year Congress appropriated enough money to last for this year. But we need to keep in mind that there could be political impediments like providing a lot of aid in the future. So, you know, we need to make the most of this opportunity right now. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. And uh, I was reading uh, former Ambassador Michael McFall's comments in Foreign Affairs uh, like us, he, he seems to be very uh, scared that a, an incremental approach to this that just sort of goes too slowly will only play into the Russians' uh, hands. And that he actually says uh, that the, the most important step the U.S. and NATO can do right now is provide Ukraine with the weapons uh, that it needs so that it can go on the offensive. You, you've been talking to leaders. You alluded to it earlier, but you were just uh, in Europe, uh, weren't you, talking with some of our uh, leaders? What were your impressions of their comments? Well, I traveled to Ramstein Air Base uh, with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin you know, a couple of weeks ago for the monthly meeting of the Ukraine Defense Con- Contact Group, which is the coalition of more than 15 nations that are united in in supporting Ukraine. And it's, you know, it's very impressive to see uh, this is really the kind of international mobilization we have seen very rarely uh, in modern history. It occurred, you know, during the Gulf War in 1991. 
It occurred in the fight against ISIS uh, from 2014 on, but it's not by any stretch the norm. I think it really owes a lot to U.S. international leadership. And I think, you know, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, they all deserve a lot of credit for orchestrating this incredibly impressive coalition and keeping it marching more or less in lockstep over the past year, which is, you know, contrary to what Putin expected, because he thought that by withholding gas from Europe, he would end European support for Ukraine. And that hasn't happened at all. Instead, the Europeans have found alternative gas supplies and the the West seems pretty united a year later in support of Ukraine. So that's a tremendous story. Great success story, really. Uh, now, when I happened to be at Ramstein with with Secretary Austin and everybody else, that was actually one of the few points of real contention because the U.S. and Germany were, you know, at loggerheads over whether the Germans would provide these Leopard 2 tanks. And, you know, Olaf Schultz, the, the German chancellor, his position was that he would not provide German tanks until the U.S. provided our tanks. And, you know, Secretary Austin took the view that the Leopard 2s are much more useful to the Ukrainians than the Abrams, so he wasn't going to provide the Abrams as a symbolic measure. But, I, you know, I think that, that to me didn't make a lot of sense. And I think President Biden decided, rightly so, that, yeah, we'll, we'll offer the Abrams. It'll take a while to arrive. But in the meanwhile, it's going to unlock the German tanks, not only from Germany, but from, you know, 13 other countries in Europe that have those tanks. That makes a lot of sense. So that was really one of the few bumps in the road of allied unity. And and I think we, we overcame it pretty quickly. It didn't, it didn't cause that much of a rupture. So I think this has been a great success story. And, you know, compare the unity of more than 50 countries in support of Ukraine compared to what's on the other side. I mean, who does Russia have supplying them? Well, basically, as far as we know, it's only Iran and North Korea, these two rogue states. I mean, the Russians also, you know, are running low on um, munitions. They also need outside supplies. But and there's still a lot of countries, you know, from China to India to South Africa to many others that continue to trade with Russia and to ignore, you know, Western sanctions. But there are only two countries that we know of that are actually providing weapons to the Russians as opposed to more than 50 providing them to the Ukrainians. So that's a huge disparity, and it shows you where the international community stands. It's encouraging to see things come together like that, and, and certainly we, we have to uh, tip our hat to uh, the U.S. leadership that has uh, resulted or uh, been significant. But I, I've been very impressed with our European allies and their willingness to stand up, and also to uh, particularly, and perhaps no surprise, the Eastern European countries who've experienced, uh, of course, in Soviet times, what the Russian kind of aggression that, that they was brought to their countries and appreciate the importance, the significance of the moment uh, here. So with all of this, you know, it, it seems clear that Ukraine is on the right side of international law, the U.N. charter. It's being supported by countries around the world. And yet here in the United States, the, the home of the brave, the land of the free, we still see notable American politicians and commentators critical of them and openly siding with Russia. How do you explain that? Well, it's very dismaying to see, and, and you're right, some of the most notable people in the Republican ranks, whether it's Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or J Senator J.D. Vance, are all very hostile 
to to Ukraine, and they they make sort of preposterous arguments like we shouldn't be sending tanks to Ukraine; we should be sending them to the southern border, you know, uh, as if the Mexican army is invading us, you know, on the southern border. It's baffling and dismaying, especially you know for somebody like me when. Uh, you know, I, up until 2016, I spent my entire life as a, as a Republican, and you know, Republicans were always the tough on Russia party, the tough on the Soviet Union party. And in the 1980s, you know, there was the Reagan doctrine of supporting insurgents fighting against communism in Afghanistan or Nicaragua or elsewhere. And you know, so how do Republicans now justify wanting to abandon the the Ukrainians who are fighting against Russian aggression? It, it just doesn't make any sense. I think it's really a resurgence of Republican isolationism coupled with some latent sympathy for for Putin, who has done a lot to try to reach out to right wingers in the Western world and position himself as, you know, this defender of Christian values and opponent of LGBTQ rights and and so forth. And unfortunately, he's I think he's hornswoggled some some Republicans. Well, let's uh, return to the the current situation because it's a significant moment because we're coming up on the first anniversary of the February 24th of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. And uh, Major General Kirill Budinov, the Ukraine's military intelligence boss, has been pretty vocal lately that that they're coming again. Several Ukrainians have said they think that uh, this will be tied to the anniversary of the original uh, invasion. Um, what are your thoughts there on what we might see from the Russians uh, towards the end of this month? Really hard to know. I mean, I think it's safe to, to say that most offensives that are predicted don't occur. I mean, last year we actually had one that did occur. So, uh, But I, I would not necessarily rely on what the Ukrainians are saying because— while they have pretty good intelligence, they're also part of what they're doing is also messaging. It's also an exercise yes. in propaganda to some extent. So I would wait to hear what the U.S. intelligence community says. And I haven't heard them really say, at least publicly, that they expect a Russian offensive around February 24th, although it could, you know, it could easily happen. I think uh, both sides are certainly gearing up for offensives. And, you know, from a purely military strategy standpoint, I don't know what, what the best advice to offer the Ukrainians would be, because there's an argument for them to say that, by all means, let the Russians go first, uh, because, you know, in modern warfare, the defensive side has an advantage in, in in operations. It's harder to attack than to defend. You saw that last year when the Ukrainians stopped the Russian offensive. So there's, there's an argument to be made for let the Russians go first, bloody their noses, let them defeat their offensive, and then send them reeling, and that could open up the space for a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. That's, you know, basically what happened in on the Western Front in 1918 when the Germans mounted their their final offensive, and then it collapsed. And you know, the Britain, France, and, and the U.S. their forces counterattacked, and and Germany in turn collapsed. I mean, I don't expect Russia's going to collapse, but it's possible that a failed Russian offensive could open up the way for for a very successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. But again, that's all just speculation. I mean, both sides obviously have a massive incentive to cloak what they're doing and not advertise it in advance. Intelligence estimates of Russian losses say that they they may run as high killed and wounded, up to 200,000. 
certainly uh, tremendous losses they've taken. And yet at the same time, there are also intelligence estimates that they've pumped more troops uh, into the, uh, the, the areas, the forward areas uh, in, in Ukraine. They really haven't acquitted themselves, their ground forces, in a way that uh, it seems like numbers of prisoners uh, can make a difference. I, I don't know. The only, the only thing I can think of is that you still have to expend a certain amount of blood and treasure to fight against the masses. And I guess there's a, some sense that uh, this is weakening of the Ukrainians just by putting these, uh, these sort of troops forward. But it, it doesn't strike me as Moscow really having many advantages to press in an offensive. No, I think there are big advantages are basically two. One is they have a lot of people. And two, they don't care about losing their people. The Ukrainians, you know, are they're part of a democracy, so they're sensitive to casualties, whereas Putin runs a dictatorship and doesn't seem to care how many Russian troops get slaughtered. And in fact, as you pointed out, a number of them, you know, operating for the Wagner company are actually convicts. And so they're basically viewed as expendable. But they also have major disadvantages, which is that I haven't seen any indication that the Russians are really learning from experience or improving their operational or, or tactical ability. Uh, they seem like they're still doing pretty much what they've always done, which is staging these massive artillery barrages and then these kinds of human wave attacks. I mean, there's very little ingenuity or initiative in what they're doing. And I think the Ukrainians have shown that they are a much more capable force in, in the way that they've been trained since 2014 they're starting to overcome their their soviet mindset they're pushing responsibility down to lower levels to junior officers and ncos they're really showing initiative and creativity uh in the way that they operate whereas the russians are still very much top-down dependent and i think there's you know a sense that putin personally interferes in a lot of the russian operational decision making which is not going to help because there are some somewhat competent officers in the Russian military, but it's hard for them to really do much because their decisions are often overridden for political reasons. And so, you know, you have this, and you, you have this, you know, competition going on between the Wagner company and, you know, these Russian mercenaries and, and the Ministry of Defense. So there's a lot, a lot of politicking, you know, a lot of reasons why Russian decisions are being made that have nothing to do with the, with the military merits. You know, you mentioned the initiative at the lower levels, sort of, which is very much enshrined in Western doctrine, and of course, uh, the the concept of Ostrog's uh, taktik, the mission orders that uh, allow smaller units and lower levels to operate, just knowing commanders' intent. And I have to say that one of the things that was the most encouraging things to watch, for my part was to see as this uh, unfolded in the early stages that that eight years that we'd had when we were actually having a chance to influence the Ukrainians with the uh, doctrine and training, that that uh, a lot of that did seem to take hold and was uh, seemed to be one of the major factors responsible for their success on the battlefield. And I'm sure that's only been uh, reinforced by, by what's happened. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think, but I would point out a few other factors as well. I think, I mean, a, I think that is true. I think the Ukrainians 
uh, have really benefited from Western training and, and, and support. But let's remember that the United States also provided a ton of training and support and weapons in Afghanistan and Iraq. And in both cases, you had those armies collapse pretty quickly. In the case of Iraq, in the face of the ISIS offensive uh, in 2014, and, and in the case of Afghanistan, in the face of the Taliban offensive in uh, 2021. And I think a lot of the difference, in, I mean, I think there's two major differences between those countries and Ukraine. One is there's a higher level of human capital in Ukraine that basically Ukrainians are more educated. And so they're able to master very technical systems very quickly. And in fact, they've shown this tremendous ability to kind of MacGyver things, to improvise, to to put together systems from different countries and to, you know, load on their own software and do all sorts of stuff to make it adapt, you know, to adapt it for their own environment in, in very impressive ways. And it's also allowed them to learn very quickly from what they're being taught by Western trainers. But the other element of it, which I think is even more important, is the fact that the Ukrainian government has political legitimacy. And in a lot of ways, the Iraqi and Afghan governments really did not have legitimacy, that they were, there was kind of a sense in both of those countries that the governments, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, but there was kind of a sense those governments were imposed from the outside by the West. And in many ways, groups like ISIS and the Taliban had more nationalist legitimacy than the governments that we were supporting. And that is obviously not the case in Ukraine, because this is a homegrown government. And Putin had thought that there would be sympathy for the Russian position. He thought that a lot of Ukrainians would be happy to be taken over by, by Russia. And of course, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union prior to 1991. But that hasn't been the case at all. In fact, even Russian-speaking or ethnically Russian Ukrainians have rallied overwhelmingly, 90-plus percent, uh, to the Ukrainian state. And, you know, President Zelensky is a democratically elected leader. And, of course, there are many doubts about him to begin with, but he's really shown himself to be a tremendous wartime leader who has overwhelming popular support in a way that leaders like, you know, Ashraf Ghani or, or Nuri al-Maliki, they never had that kind of support. So I think that that really makes a vast, vast difference that, you know, we can provide our weapons and training, but it really matters who's receiving them and, and how committed they are to the to the war. And the Ukrainians are really, really committed. They're willing to, to die to defend their country. Let's think beyond the near term. Do you think that Ukraine can become part of the uh, European Union? I think there is the possibility for Ukraine to become part of the EU, although not any time in the near future. I think the possibility of Ukraine becoming part of NATO is an even more distant dream because I think really to enable Ukrainian membership in NATO for sure and probably the EU as well, they would really have to resolve this war and to create some kind of internationally recognized borders with Russia, which would, of course, require a substantial Russian retreat from their current positions, because I don't think that the other European countries want to be in a position where they're going to be dragged into war with Russia, which is what would happen if you were to admit Ukraine right now into NATO. And there, I think they're concerned even about membership in the EU, which doesn't carry the same defense obligations, but it still has symbolic meaning. And also there's a lot of other issues with the fact that, you know, the Ukrainian economy is very poor. It's been devastated by by this conflict. There's There have been longstanding issues with corruption. 
And I think Zelensky is moving to address some of those. But there's no question that rebuilding Ukraine is going to be incredibly, incredibly costly. And you can see why European countries are reluctant to have Ukraine join the EU, because that would wind up the EU would have to pay the bill. But on the other hand, I think they're also very stirred by the Ukrainian resistance and and by the plea that Zelensky makes, which is that we Ukrainians are fighting for your European values. I think a lot, most people in Europe understand that's the case as well. So I think they're torn. And I think there's some division in Europe over this issue where the Eastern European states, I think, are much more in favor of incorporating Ukraine as quickly as possible into all those structures because they also feel the threat from Russia very keenly, whereas the Western European countries are more reluctant, especially countries like Germany and France that would have to pay much of the bill. Let's turn on the other side. What about Russia after all of this? I mean, in in many ways, Russia had become somewhat integrated into the global economy, was prospering in many ways. You know, has that all been squandered? And where does Russia go from here? Well, those are all great questions. And, and I think at the moment, Russia is on a fairly bleak trajectory, although uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a, for the near term, it's a sustainable trajectory because the Russian economy is certainly suffering from Western sanctions, but it's kind of weathering the storm because countries like India and China are stepping forward to buy Russian oil and gas, which is really the only thing that the Russians export that anybody wants. And, and they're also providing, the China in particular, providing some of the microchips, cell phones, electronics, other things that the Russians can't get from the West anymore. So there's no question that, you know, Russia is, is taking a hit and it's going to be harder for their elites, especially to enjoy the Western consumer goods and the vacations in Western Europe that they had gotten used to. But Putin personally is doing just fine. I mean, his, his lifestyle is not going to be crimped and he's an absolute dictator. So unless he dies or gets overthrown, it's hard to imagine an immediate change of trajectory. But it is, I mean, it is in the longer run. It's a tragedy what's happened to Russia because, you know, at the end of the Soviet Union in 1991 and the advent of democracy under Boris Yeltsin, Russia had a chance to become kind of a normal European country. And it could be a very prosperous, stable, democratic country by now. There's tremendous human capital there, too. I mean, they have there's a lot of educated people in Russia, and they have tremendous resources, so uh, they could be doing very well. And unfortunately, they've become this kind of dictatorial basket case with a huge gap between a small sliver of haves and the vast majority of have-nots with terrible poverty. And one of the things you hear, for example, is how amazed that the Russian, a lot of the Russian soldiers are by the kind of quality of life they find in Ukrainian towns that they've invaded that the Ukrainians have all sorts of luxuries like indoor plumbing that a lot of these Russian soldiers are not used to because they're from the, the poorest regions of Russia. And Ukraine itself, as I mentioned, is a pretty poor country by Western European standards, but it's doing a lot better than, than most of Russia has done, even though Ukraine does not have that same kind of energy resources that Russia has. So it's, it's really a tragedy the way that Putin and his small band of, of cronies and oligarchs have looted the country, and they're really mainly good at two things. One is corruption, and two is repression. And unfortunately, 
that's a pretty potent combination, which allows the small elite in Moscow and St. Petersburg to loot the rest of the country. And sadly, I don't see any real challenge to, to Putin's rule emerging anytime soon. But if he's removed from the scene, I think then you could start to see some major changes. Max, as always, it's been a pleasure uh, hearing your insights and perspective. Thank you for joining us on Speaking Globally. It's a pleasure to be on with you, Aldo. Wishing you and, and, and the program all the best. My guest today has been columnist, author, and foreign policy analyst Max Boot. He is the Jeannie J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a columnist for the Washington Post. Follow him on Twitter at Max Boot. Our podcast is recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio on the Troy University campus and is produced and edited by Austin Toy with help from Kyle Gassett. I'm Walter Gavan, and I look forward to talking with you again soon on Speaking Globally.